Good morning. There are a few empty chairs in the front. If the people in the back would like to uh, step forward, you're comfortable where you are, that's fine. Let me hook myself up to this system. Helps me a little bit increase my volume. Can everyone hear me? Okay. Well, uh, if you would, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. I'm looking for signs of surprise on people because some people know that's not the book I'll be preaching on. For those of you who may not have been with us for the last few months, we've been preaching verse by verse through the chapter, through the book of Acts. And as we get to the place where a certain letter was written by one of the apostles to a church. That's what the epistles are. We take a break and we turn to that letter and we read it or we study it. And we uh, try to preach it in a single week, which is what I'll try to do today with the book of Corinthians. If you remember, we stopped uh, last week in uh, the book of Acts when Paul was at the church at Ephesus. And that's appropriate because this letter was written from the Ephesian church. And there is a verse in the book of Ephesians that helps a little bit understand what Paul is trying to accomplish in this letter. So if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4 and I'll read a few verses starting in verse 11. And he, that is Jesus, himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." We, uh, the verse, the theme verse we chose for this study in the book of Acts, anyone remembers what it is? Very good. Jesus said that he is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, building the church includes more than just saving people. We've seen in Ephesus there was a great movement and many people were being saved. When Jesus is building his church, he's concerned more than just people, which is a wonderful thing, passing from a destiny of damnation into a destiny of eternal life with God. That's being saved. You're you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And that's a wonderful thing, but Jesus is concerned with more than that. Now that you've been saved, Jesus is concerned with your spiritual growth. After you're saved, you have an opportunity to mature in Christ, to mature spiritually, to develop. We're taking a parenting class right now, and we're thinking about how our children are growing up and becoming uh, more and more what we want an adult person to be like. In a similar way, Christ is working in us to bring us into a spiritual maturity, to grow up. And while Paul was at Ephesus, he received a delegation from Corinth, and they came to minister to him. They probably brought him some provisions. They wanted to encourage him. But they also brought a report about the Corinthian church. And that report was concerning to Paul. It showed him that there were some issues in the church at Corinth. The believers were not doing very well. And so he writes the letter of the Corinthian to help them recognize these areas in which they're not maturing properly and to show them how they need to deal with these issues. So as we're going to the book of Corinth, to the book of 1 Corinthians, we'll see these different areas being brought up which are areas in which the believers were perhaps a little slow in maturing. And Paul is bringing up these issues, and that's something we can use as well. The reason Christ directed Paul to write this letter isn't just for the benefit of the Corinthians. It's for our benefit as well. We can look at that book and see areas in which we might need to grow. And I can tell you, as we go through it, there are many areas in which I was challenged. I need to grow. And you need to grow. And the important thing is that we agree with God that we need to grow and we allow him to work in us 
in this area and to see ourselves mature. If you look here, there's really a wonderful phrase in this verse, uh, chapter, uh, sorry, verse 13. It talks, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. An adult person in this view is one that is just like Jesus. And that's what God is working in my life and in your life to bring us to that point. And that's a wonderful place to be. It's worth letting God work in our life and cooperate with Him as He's working with us and try to mature. So with that, let's go ahead and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. And I'll try to pick one, roughly one verse or section per chapter and I'll read it. And then we'll talk about the things that were going in the chapter and the issues they were struggling with and maybe how it applies to our life today. So in 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, first verse I want to read is, in, is verse 12. Paul is talking to the Corinthians and he says this, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Uh, it may not be obvious what the issue that we're struggling with, maybe, maybe uh, it would make more sense if I say this. I graduated from the University of California at Berkeley. I graduated from Stanford. I got my PhD from Harvard. You, you get the sense. In a sense, they were becoming full of themselves. They were looking for something that happened to them that gave them a sense of uh, superiority over others or uh, esteem in the eyes of others. That, that's, what they were being, that's what they were chasing after in that particular issue. Well, this is what Paul has to say to that. If we go down to verse... 27. Actually, I'll start, start in verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh shall glory in his presence. There's a good verse in uh, Luke chapter, chapter 15. Let's see if I can find it here in my notes. It says, says that what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. They were chasing after some area of human greatness. In that particular case, it was that of teaching or education. And, and people chase after many other things. Some people want money. Some people want to have a certain goal of career. And all these things are something that appears great to the world. And because of that, we're chasing after those things. So we will have a status of being great in the world. Well, God doesn't have the same value system that we do. He doesn't consider those things great. In fact, it says in Luke that he considered those things an abomination because they're all self-seeking. And God is not self-seeking. So to God, this self-seeking of wanting myself to be great, greater than others, to God, that's an abomination. And what, what Paul says here is, look who God saved. God didn't start in saving the professors in the universities. He didn't start by saving the rich people of the world. He didn't start by saving the president and the people that are high and mighty. Instead, God saved from the lowly people in order to bring the things that are of some value in the world to nothing, to show they have no value in his sight, to bring them down. So, brothers and sisters, I know it's a temptation for myself. I want the greatness of the world. The world presents these things to us. This is greatness. This is what you want. And we instinctively start grasping after it. And what God is telling us here, what Paul is telling us here, these things have no value in the sight of God. Let go. Don't chase after those things. Don't chase after these degrees, these uh, wealth, careers, all these things that the world presents to you as great. Don't chase after them. They have no value in the sight of God. 
In chapter 2, Paul rounds off that statement or that teaching. If we look at verse 6, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. There's a tendency I find in myself, and sometimes I see it in other Christians, that, well, you know, if I, if I can't seek all these things, well, I'll just stay home and, you know, watch TV or play games, right? Because these things have no value. I won't chase after them. Well, that's not what Paul wants you to do or God wants you to do. He does want you to chase, but after the things that have value in them. And, and Paul starts talking about here about wisdom. He says there is wisdom that's worth seeking after. You're probably not going to find it taught in Berkeley or in Stanford, but uh, this is how he describes it, describes it in, uh, in verse 10. But God has revealed them, this wisdom, to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. That is something that is worth seeking after, to know the deep things of God. There's a good verse in Jeremiah. It says this, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. There is knowledge out there that has great value. That knowledge is the knowledge of God. And it amazes me every time we get together for the breaking of bread and we start talking about the Lord, there's some new area to explore. And that's, that's what the, this word, the deep things of God, you're, you're delving. People who go uh, snorkeling or uh, diving, uh, they delve the deeps of the ocean and they look for all those wonderful things that they can find at the bottom. And the same thing, when we come here to worship God in the morning, it's as if every time we go, and look for some other cranny uh, that shows the glories of who God is. And God says, this is something worth seeking after. So don't be a Christian that sits at home and watches TV. Seek for the great things. Seek for the knowledge of God. In chapter 3, Paul touches on one of the things that might have caused the Corinthians to, to, uh, to, to go after things they shouldn't be going after. Turn to verse uh, 6 and 7 in chapter 3. It says, Paul says this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God gave the increase. The Corinthians have seen people do great things for God. They saw Paul come, and Paul was the one who planted the church. He came and preached, people got saved. He stayed there for about a year and a half, and built up the believers. Many more people got saved. He did a great work for God. And so it seems, in a sense, logical. Well, he did a great work for God. He must be a great man. And we must follow Paul. And what Paul is saying here is, look, he who plants, neither he who waters, is anything. They're nothing. God gave the increase. Give God the glory. When you see something great being done for God, don't, don't use that to start thinking of how great that man is and try to emulate that man. Think of how great God is. Let that be something that causes you to go more after God, not after people. Okay, in chapter 4, if we start in verse 8 of chapter 4, Paul says this to the Corinthians, You are already full, you are already rich, you have reigned as kings without us, and indeed I could wish you did reign, that we might also reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Even to the present hour we both hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. 
And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we blessed. Being persecuted, we endure it. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. What is Paul trying to teach us in this passage? He is comparing, uh, contrasting the Corinthian church with himself. He says, you are reigning as kings without us. You are counted as wise. The world had a certain respect to the Corinthians in to the believers in Corinth. They seemed to be doing pretty well from the standard of the world. They were viewed as, as perhaps uh, wealthy or they had comfortable lives. Uh, they may have been u- viewed as wise. And yet, if you look at Paul's life, he was getting the very opposite. He wasn't doing well from worldly standard. People didn't esteem Paul. He describes himself and the other apostles as being looked upon as the filth of the world. It's a contrast between the two. And why is that contrast there? And why is Paul bringing it to the forefront? I believe it's because the Corinthians were living a Christian life that allowed them to be doing well in the world. They were, in a sense, friends with the world while being believers at the same time. And that is a problem. If you're a true Christian, if you're really following the Lord, the, the Lord, you will be like Paul. You will be despised by the world. If you find yourself doing well with the world, you're having a good relationship with the world, the people in the world say, well, this guy is, is doing great, it's a sign for a problem. Let me put it this way. Are you expecting the same world that gave Jesus the cross to give you a crown? And if this world is giving you a crown, are you really following Jesus? Are you doing the same things that Jesus was doing? This is what James says. He says, uh, you adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The two are contrasting. If, Like we were looking at the value system of the world versus the value system of God. If you are, if you are friends with the world, it's probably because you have a, a similar value system to what the world has. If you're in opposition to the world, it's because you have the value system that God has. So it's a sign of concern. When everything is going very well and there's really no, no, uh, nothing in your life that the world uh, thinks slow of, there's a question. Am I really following God? Am I really esteeming the things of God? If so, why am I doing so well with the world? This is something that's convicting to me. I like, I like being liked by other people. Okay, that's not unusual. But if you let your desire to be accepted by other people follow what they want you to do instead of following what the Lord wants you to do, that's a problem. We need to be following what the Lord wants us to do. And that will usually end up in rejection by the world. The world will reject you. The world does not like the things of God. Okay, chapter 5. Chapter 5, look at verse, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So there was sin in the Corinthian church, and that's not a surprise. There will be sin, even though we've been saved. Uh, we're still sinners. We'll still commit sin. The problem was the response to sin. Look again at verse 2. And you are puffed up. Another word to put in there might be arrogant. And you are arrogant. And have not rather mourned. Arrogant. So what? So what if I have this sin in my life? That's being arrogant. You're not doing anything about it. You're tolerating it. The right approach would be to mourn about it. If there's sin in my life, it should bother me. I shouldn't be comfortable with the sin being there. And as a result, the, the teaching was really to the church. There was a sinner in the church, and they needed to handle that situation by putting the sinner out of fellowship. Okay, Again, it was a believer that was practicing sin. We're all sinners. <laughs> a believer that was practicing sin and wasn't repenting of it. The right response was to put that believer out of fellowship. That's what excommunication is. That's what the Bible teaches. Similarly, as believers, when we, there is sin in our life, we need to put it away. We can't be complacent 
with that. We can't be tolerant of that. We have to mourn about it. We have to take drastic measures and remove it from us. <clears throat> a good example of that is, uh, was in, in the message from last week in the Ephesians. I don't know if many of you remember, at the end of the passage we read, it, it says many people who used to practice uh, magic and witchcraft became believers. And what did they do? Right. They took all the books, they put them in a big pile, and they burned them. Um, Mr. McDonald has a, a good uh, word of advice to early believers. believers. He tells them, have a good bonfire. He says, all these areas in your life that were sin, get rid of them. Don't keep them. That's what we need to do. Have a good bonfire. Chapter 6. Starting at verse 1. Did any of you having a matter against another go to law before, before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Let's stop there. So the issue that was here is there was... Uh, one believer committed some wrong against another believer. And again, it's going to happen. We're, we're a church that is full of sinners. Yes, we redeem sinners and we have a wonderful future, but we will stumble and we will uh, occasionally offend other believers. The issue here was really the response. The offended believer decided to take the matter to court. He was going to sue the, the other believer that somehow offended against him or took something from him. And Paul is trying to bring them back into the senses. And he's saying this, don't you know what, what uh, you are as believers? You're going to be the people that are going to be judging this world. You're even going to be judging angels. What are you doing taking a person like that and suing him in a court of law that's part of this world that you guys are going to be judges? This, the whole thinking was twisted because they didn't value the other believers as they should have. They didn't have this eternal perspective of other believers and the glory that these other believers were going to have, and so they were doing this thing that was completely inappropriate. I was thinking of an illustration for this, and say you had your, uh, you somehow knew the future, and you knew that your neighbor was going to become the president of the United States. Wouldn't you be somewhat extra nice to that guy? Maybe, maybe say, hey, you know, I'm mowing my lawn right now. Would you like me to do yours too? <laughs> right? Because one day this guy is going to have so much power that it will be really good to be on his good side. Well, the, the smallest believer is going to have a greater position than the president of this country. So doesn't it make sense to be a little extra nice to that smallest believer? It does. We should treat them extra nice. And that's what Paul is saying here. You guys, what are you guys doing? Don't you know this person is going to be a person that will judge angels one day? How are you treating him? Chapter 7. Chapter 7 is uh, one of those chapters most believers, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, many believers know what this chapter is about. Uh, because it's, uh, it talks about an area that's of great concern for people going through a certain stage in their life, usually right around <coughs> late teens, 20s, sometimes going, going into their 30s. Uh, single per persons are usually very interested in finding that special person they're going to be spending the rest of their lives with. We call that marriage. <laughs> and uh, there was a question. There seemed to have been a question in the Corinthians toward Paul, in verse 1, Now concerning the things which you wrote me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And he, con he continues talking about these things. Uh, it's clear they were asking him, is it right to get married or is it not right to get married? And Paul's answer was yes. <laughs> and uh, the, the fact is, either one could be God's will for you. Let's read verse 7. Paul says this, For I wish that all men were even as myself, that is, single, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And the point is, they're both gifts from God. Being married is a gift from God, 
not being married is a gift from God. And uh, for those who think, well, you shouldn't get married, you have to remember marriage was created by God. And he made us with certain uh, desires, or you can even call them instincts, uh, towards another person, a desire to be married. It's a desire that God has given to us. And that's not something that you should ignore lightly. If God has given you this desire, if God has created this institution of marriage, it's a good thing that God has made for us. There's nothing wrong with wanting to get married. Okay? What Paul is saying here, being married might not be the best thing for you. It could be that God has given you a special gift to be single, in which case you don't have to be married and you can have something even greater. And this is what he talks about in verse... Verse 32 and 33, Paul says this, But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There's something inevitable that will happen when you're married. There's another person in your life now, and you have to be concerned for that person. You should be. It's what God expects you to do. But in your, the time you're going to be spending concerned to that, being concerned for that person is not time you're going to be spending focused on some special ministry that God might have for you. So if God has given you the gift of singleness, you will be able to serve God better, be more dedicated, accomplish more things for God by remaining single than if you were to get married. So being married is a good thing, and it's a legitimate desire to have, but it's possible that for you, God has this gift of singleness and you can devote yourself to God in a way you will not be able to devote yourself to Him if you remained married or if you chose to be married. And so the answer is yes. God's will might be one or the other. Seek God's will for you. If you're not married yet, don't assume God's desire for you is to be married. You may have a better life being single, better opportunity to serve God than if you were to get married. Chapter 8 through 10 really carry uh, one thought. And uh, that thought I, I expressed in these words is seeking our temporal good or benefit in the expense of the eternal good of others. The issue that brought this, this uh, subject uh, to the surface was meat. I don't know about the rest of you guys. I like eating meat. And meat was found in great abundance and uh, for low price in Corinth if you didn't mind eating the meat of animals that were sacrificed to idols. Because there were a lot of idols in Corinth and each of them needed to have animals sacrificed to him probably many times a day. And so there was plenty of meat available from animals that were slaughtered in this manner. Well, some believers had a problem with that. I'm not going to eat the animal, the meat of an animal that was offered to an idol. I will be somehow participating in this idol worship. And I don't want to do it. That, that is wrong. That's against the will of God for me. Well, there were some believers that said, well, an idol is nothing. Who cares what these babblers are saying? I want meat. And so that person would buy the meat and would eat it. And Paul doesn't so much... The, the fact that that person ate the meat of these, of these animals isn't as big of a deal for Paul as the attitude of, of the person who was eating the meat toward this other person who had convictions against it. Because the person who had convictions against it, which I'm sure loved meat just as much as the person who didn't have any conviction, would be tempted. Well, this person is eating this meat. You know, I'll have some too. And he will take some of the meat. And then his conscience will start convicting him. He'll be like, I just participated in the worship of idols. And that would cause them to stumble in their walk. And they wouldn't be walking with God. And their eternal good is affected. Even if they're believers, they're now not not doing as well as they could be doing as believers, and that has an eternal consequence for these people, an eternal consequence for the whole work that God is doing. And that's what really bothers Paul here, that these people, for having some meat, were willing to sacrifice the eternal benefit of these other people, of, of their brethren. So again, for your, for your temporary satisfaction, to satisfy your appetite, you're willing to sacrifice the eternal good of others. That's what, that's what Paul had an issue with. That was in chapter 8. I'm sorry, I didn't read the verse. Let me read it now, just so 
Just you wouldn't say, Nard, where are you pulling all this from? So this was verse 9, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. The liberty of eating the meat will become a stumbling block to those who had a weak conscience about eating meat offered to idols. In chapter 9, uh, let's read uh, the end of verse 12. Actually, I'll read the whole verse. It says, If others, so chapter 9 and verse 12, If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. What right is it that Paul is talking of here? It is the right of uh, the, an apostle or any full-time minister, really, uh, minister of the, of the gospel, to be provided for materially by those that he's ministering to. So if somebody comes and he's teaching you the word of God, he's helping you grow in your walk with God, the Bible says that you are to provide materially for this person. What you're really doing, you're freeing him from having to work and support himself and potentially his family so that he can dedicate himself to serving you in the things of God. That makes sense, right? Are you willing to give up some of your material goods in order to have spiritual benefits? I think that's a pretty good deal for those of us who are giving our material things for spiritual benefit. And that's all right. The Lord actually said that. He said, those who... Uh, I'm sorry. I uh, might have to find that verse here. Okay, I'll move on. But the Lord said that those who, who serve in the gospel should eat off the gospel. Basically, they should be provided for. Now, so Paul had this right. When Paul went to Corinth, he could have expected the Corinthians to be providing for him so he can just focus on serving them. But Paul is saying in that verse, verse 12 that we read, Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Instead of using this right and expecting the Corinthians to provide for him, Paul went out and got a job. And while he was spending his, his time ministering to the saints, he, with the rest of his time, instead of being able to relax or rest or maybe prepare a little more, he had to work to provide for himself. And so his, his temporal benefit at the time would have been, well, you guys need to provide for me. And he would have been perfectly right to say they needed to provide for him so he can rest in his free time as opposed to having to work in his free time. But he says, we didn't use this right for your benefit. Okay, and what was the benefit of the Corinthians? They got saved. They were built up in Christ. He gave up his temporal benefit of not having to work while he was ministering to them in order to, for them to have the eternal reward of being saved and, and becoming more mature in Christ. So Paul was willing to give up his temporal benefit for their eternal good. He's asking them to do the same. Give up your temporal good of eating meat for the benefit, the eternal benefit of others. That's what he was asking them to do. In chapter 10, you can look at verse 6. Paul says, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. In that chapter, Paul brings them back to the Old Testament and he tells them about the, the Jews that God delivered through Moses from Egypt. He saved them from slavery. And, you know, they, if anyone had the right to think that they were doing well, they were right with God, and they didn't have to worry about God's judgment, it was these people because they were just saved by God. God showed how much he loved these people. And yet these people started craving for temporal benefits. They wanted meat. I don't know if you remember the story, but they said, what is this manna we're eating all the time? This stuff is getting, you know, stuck in our throat. We don't like it. And they asked for meat. And what happened to them? They died. God judged them. And what Paul is telling the Corinthians, you know, even though you guys are doing well with God, God saved you, it doesn't mean God's not going to chastise you for behavior like this. When you're putting your temporal good ahead of the eternal benefit of others, you can expect God to step in and do something about it. It's a warning. It's a warning to the Corinthians. 
Okay, chapter 11. Chapter 11 has two uh, sections to it. The first one deals with something called head coverings. Some, some of the ladies in the Corinthian church did not want to put on a head covering. Uh, the evidence is that the great majority was used doing it, both in Corinth and elsewhere at the time. And Paul, what Paul points out is that the head covering is really a symbol of authority. It's something they put on their head, which is a symbol of authority. And in verse 3, he says this, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every... Sorry. I want you to know that the head of every man is, is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. What Paul is saying there is, there is in this world a structure of authority that God has put into place. And we talked about it in our parenting class today, how those different authority structures, obviously God is in authority, but he also placed the government in authority. He made parents the authority of their children. Uh, and there's various other authority structures in this world. And one of the authority structures that God has put in place was that uh, the woman, uh, the wife, would be under the authority of her husband. It's something God has put into place. And uh, it bothers a lot of people because they think, well, that means that God doesn't love women as much as he loves men. And that's not true. The Bible tells us that God loves women as much that there is neither female nor male in Christ. In God's perspective, they're both, they're both going to have the same glorious destiny. There isn't going to be any difference. God, God loves, some people could argue God loves women more than men because, there's, generally speaking, more women, women get saved than men. And generally speaking, women tend to be more spiritual than men. So no, God doesn't love men more than he loves women. But he put this authority structure in place because of the story that he's telling. Remember, God created this world. And he has a story to tell. Everything that God does is for a purpose. And in creating this world and you and me in it, God is telling a story. He's really telling a story about himself. So people through watching us might learn about him. So we, from the perspective of eternity, watching what happened in this world might learn things about God. And when we are refusing to accept the role that God has given us, we're really messing with the story. Uh, I had an illustration for that. It's a story when I was in sixth grade. Uh, my, my class had a play. It was kind of a rite of passage in, in the school system I went to in the kibbutzes. When you went to sixth grade to seventh grade, you basically moved from elementary school to the equivalent of high school or junior high school. And we would put on a play for the rest of the kibbutz to watch. And the play that we put on was Peter Pan. And uh, originally I was given the role of being one of the lost boys. And, uh, but uh, halfway or, or some distance through the preparation for the play, the, the, uh, the boy that was given the role of being Nana, anybody knows who Nana was? Right? The dog, right. Nana was the dog felt that that role somehow didn't become him. It was humiliating or something. And, and, and so he wasn't willing to play that role anymore. And so he got to be one of the pirates. And, uh, and I was offered that role instead. And I took it. And some people said that I stole the show. <laughs> because you actually get a lot of attention as Nana, and you can do a lot of things that get people's attention. And so... You have, to, you have to remember that while there's different roles in the drama that God is telling with this story, what really counts is how well you're playing the role God has given you. Stay within that role. Be in subjection to God and see what he can do with you. The second half of chapter 11 talks about the Lord's Supper. It's uh, what uh, many people call communion. It's what we do here every morning. We call it the breaking of bread. And it's doing exactly what Jesus told his disciples to do. Remember, actually in verse uh, 23, Paul starts quoting it. So this is chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after Supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death.
until he comes. Well, that's what we do. We have bread here, and we have uh, a grape juice, the fruit of the vine, divided into cups, and we partake of it. That's the same thing they were doing. But Paul has this to say about them in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Why is Paul saying it? Because they were doing it in an unworthy manner. They weren't doing it the way God wanted him, them to do it. And, and one of, some of the ways we, we see them acting, if we looked earlier in the passage, was uh, they weren't considerate of other believers that were there. They didn't have love for them. Because uh, in, instead of having a meal for everybody, every person brought his own meal. And some people couldn't afford a meal. And they were there hungry. And they had nothing to eat. And the brethren here that had a, a plate full of food weren't sharing with them. They were just eating it themselves. They weren't loving the the brother. And God says this, if you don't have love to your brother you can see, how can you say you have love to God that you can't see? So each other was a missing love there. Some of them were drunk. They were eating and drinking so much they were drunk during the ceremony when they were breaking the bread and drinking, drinking the cup. And Paul says, he was doing it in a manner like this, it's going to be judgment to them. God isn't going to appreciate it. And the application it has, I took it to myself, is God is, is not concerned with the forms. God isn't so concerned with you coming, taking bread, eating it, taking the cup and drinking it. That's not, God is concerned with where your heart is. Are you truly worshipping God at that time? That's what God cares about. Don't follow the form, do the reality. Jesus said this to the woman at the well. He that worships God might, must worship him in truth and in spirit. Okay, if you're not worshipping God in truth and in spirit, God is not interested. In fact, in this case, he was judging them. The way you guys are doing it is so despicable that I'm going to judge you for worshipping me. You're not. You're not worshipping me. Chapter 12 through chapter 14 talk about spiritual gifts, the use of spiritual gifts. In verse 7, it tells us why God gives us spiritual gifts. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. The Bible says that when we believe in Jesus and we're saved, God gives us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit manifests himself in our lives through spiritual gift. We're given spiritual gift. Every believer has some spiritual gift. And the reason you're given it, it tells you here, it's for the profit of all. So, God sees the needs in the church. We're a church, we're a group of people meeting to worship the Lord, and God sees a certain need. And God doesn't just step in and fill that need, He gives a gift to a particular person. And He expects that person to then use that gift to minister to the body so that that need is met. That's the purpose. Okay? What was happening in Corinth? Well, in Corinth, somebody had the gift, and like, boy, I'm a pretty cool Christian. I have this gift. They were using what should have been used for the benefit of others. They were trying to use for the benefit of themselves. They used it to think more highly of themselves, which is the opposite. God didn't give it for them to feel special. He gave it to them to minister to others. And that's why God gives you a certain gift and me a certain gift. It isn't for us to feel like we're so special. It is so that we meet that need of the other believers. Turning to chapter 13, which is very often read in weddings, even even unbelievers' weddings. The first time I heard this uh, chapter was actually I was watching a soap opera. Uh, <laughs> All My Children. Anybody here ever seen All My Children? <laughs> and they had a wedding there and somebody read that chapter and I was like, hey, that's, that sounds pretty cool. Well, this chapter has nothing to do with wedding. It has to do with the issue at hand that the believers were not loving each other. And he says this to them. First uh, Corinthians chapter 13. Starting at first one, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become as a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not, have not love, it profits me Nothing. So these, these believers thought they were so special because they had these gifts. And Paul tells them, look, if you don't have love, it's useless. Okay? If you have this gift of tongues and, 
and uh, you can speak in tongues of men and angel, and you have not love, you you become a sounding glass. People can't. There's no value to what you're saying. It becomes noise. It's just noise at that point. Uh, if you have the gift of prophecy and understand mysteries and knowledge and, and faith and all of that, but have not love, you are nothing. You have no value for God whatsoever. If you, if you give all your goods to the poor and you allow your body to be burned somehow in service of the Lord and have not love, you are nothing. It profits you nothing. The gift that God has given you, if you're not using it for the saints, because you have no love, you are not, there's no value to it. So Again, God didn't give you your gifts to feel special. He gave it to you so by loving the saints, or because of your love for the saints, you're ministering for the saints. That's the purpose of the gift God gave you. In chapter 14, it uh, really talks about the application of these uh, of these gifts in the church. And reading in verse 19, Paul says this, Yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. So God has given you a gift, and that gift is to minister to others, and so you need to be using it in the right context where it actually helps other people. People that had the gift of tongue, it was a real gift. It showed the evidence of what, was God, what God was doing. But when they got up in the middle of the church and started saying, Bereshit uh, Elohim et nobody will say amen. <laughs> No, you don't understand what I'm saying. It didn't help you, even though I was speaking the word of God. In the same way, when people spoke in tongues, they used the gift God gave them, but they used it at the wrong time, at the wrong place. It had no value whatsoever. If you have a gift, you have to find the right application. You use it at the right time. Chapter 15 is the last uh, section. And uh, it talks about the Christian hope. And I have to be careful when I use that word because we usually use the term hope as in I hope something is going to happen, but I'm not really sure. That's the way we commonly use it. And in this Christian context, it's not used like that in the Bible because our destiny is certain. There's no hoping, there's no maybe, it will happen. But it's fixing our eyes on a future thing that is going to happen. That's the Christian hope. Instead of looking at the here and now, which might be kind of depressing if I'm doing poorly and bad things are happening to me, I have my eyes on the then and there, what's going to happen. It's sure, but it's not right here, right now, and therefore it's a Christian hope. I'm looking forward to what's going to happen. Well, in the Corinthian church, there was a certain weakness of this, that view. Uh, looking at verse 12, it says, Now if Christ be, is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. Okay, so some of the Corinthian believers didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't, they didn't believe or were not certain of that future that was expecting them. And because of that, Paul said what's going to happen. If you look at verse 32, the, the last uh, part of it, second part of it says, If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So the effect of not looking at that future expectation, I'm just looking at the here and now, well, I'm just going to try to have a good time because this is all I got. I'm not going to enjoy myself now. I'm never going to enjoy myself. Well, the Bible teaches otherwise. It says, right now we might suffer. Paul says this, For I reckon that the present, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. At this present time, we might, we might have suffering. But in the future... We have a glorious expectation. And we don't have time to read it, but you can read this chapter. You should read this whole book. Just because I preached about it doesn't mean you guys are, are off the hook. This is really meant as an appetizer, hoping that, that you all go and delve more deeply into it. But, but Paul paints in this chapter, he, he tries to give them a little bit of a picture of what it's going to be like, what the resurrection is going to be like, what a glorious body is going to be like, that they will have their eyes on that future hope, but consider that the things, that, that the sufferings of this present time is not worthy with the glory which shall be revealed in us. There's going to be, we have a glorious future that is certain, and that is so glorious, that we should be living our present life with expectation of that, which means we need to be willing to suffer. We need to be willing to work hard. And you can do it when you have a certain expectation. 
Uh, my uh, my boss in, in my, my old company told me how he would go hiking in Yosemite with expectation that at the end of the path lies Iwani, that the hotel, and he, he's going to have his, a meal over there. You know, it, it was an expectation that helped him through that pleasant time. The same thing, we are to have that expectation that pulls us through, that draws us to the, being willing to work hard now for the future expectation that we have with the Lord. Okay, so we reach uh, chapter nine, 16. Uh, and and uh, just as closing, in closing uh, thoughts, uh, as I shared this, a lot of these things are challenging uh, to me. I didn't share these things as somebody who stands in position to teach others because I have somehow met this goal. These are all areas I'm working in my life. And I realize they're all areas you want to work in your life. And there's something that pertains to that at, uh, toward the end here in verse 15. So Paul is, is, is concerned for the Corinthians in this way. And he says this, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of the care, <coughs> and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. So Paul is committing the... Corinthian believers to these people and he's saying this that these people have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints who does that sound like? devoting themselves to the ministering of the saints well to me it speaks to me of our elders the people who are devoting themselves to the ministry of the saints their concern is your well-being. And that's what the Bible teaches. The job of the elder is really to care for the spiritual need, if you would, the spiritual development of believers. Uh, I'm thankful that we have uh, people like our brothers Charlie here that came over to my house on Sunday to talk to me and sharing about issues in our life, areas in which we can improve. It takes their time. They're, they're giving up their personal time, a time to sit and relax and watch TV in order to come and to care for you. And God has provided it for you as a help. They're not, they're not to lord it over you. God didn't tell them to go and, and beat up on believers. But the, the resource that God has provided you and me to help us grow and mature in the Lord. So if, you, if that's your desire, if you want to attain to that perfect man, the measure of the fullness of Christ, well, God has given you help here. There are people who have dedicated themselves, devoted themselves, addicted themselves, some versions say, to the care of believers and to help the believers grow. And the best thing we can do is what Paul tells us to do. Submit, submit yourselves to such. Allow them to help you. Do the things that they're asking you to do. And that will help you mature and grow in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for uh, the destiny that you have for us, your desire for us to be uh, mature in you, to reach that image uh, that uh, you have, the, the per- perfection, uh, freedom from sin, uh, love for others, and all the wonderful things that you have for us. And uh, we thank you for the elders that you have given to us and all the resources you've put in our uh, disposal to help us grow. We ask just that, Lord, that you won't give up on us and that you keep working in our lives until we reach that wonderful destiny that you have for us. In your name.